0: Today on Thinking Biblically, we're gonna hear from another Jewish believer just like me. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Biblically, a podcast dedicated to connect all of scripture with all of life. Um, I I mentioned recently that some people might be surprised that uh, a podcast such as Thinking Biblically uh, is not simply just a Bible study or an academic uh, endeavor, uh, but one of the things I like to do is bring on people to share their faith stories as we're going to be doing today. And that has to do with the fact that thinking biblically is is getting to know God's story. God revealed himself in the Bible through what's called narrative, which is story, and I'm considering in a couple of weeks of, of focusing on that and 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 talking about that a little bit more but part of understanding god's story is seeing how god brings people's story into line with his own story and that's what we're going to be doing today but before i forget Please, you don't forget to subscribe uh, to my YouTube channel. Don't forget to press the notification bell or if you're listening to this on on your favorite podcast provider, you can figure out how to subscribe that way, but please do that. And also, please be sharing this with others. That's that's really going to help. And so it is my pleasure to introduce you to my good friend, Michael Gertzman. Michael Gertzman has been involved as a teacher and spiritual leader in various capacities in Canada and Israel since 1982, which happens to be the same year I met him. He, along with others, have been instrumental in starting four Messianic congregations. For those not familiar with that term, Michael will explain what that is at some point. In 1998, he founded Lion of Judah Ministries Canada michael and his wife of 52 years florin spend half the year each in canada and israel where among other things he's been involved in administrating or administering and funding humanitarian aid and community development projects in immigrant communities michael and florin have two children and four grandchildren thank you michael for being with me today
1: thank you alan it's really really good to be with you we uh for your viewers, we've had a very long friendship.
0: Do you remember <laughs> the circumstances that led to our meeting?
1: <laughs> Do I remember? Uh, I, I can't say that I remember the exact circumstances. So why it was only you... thirty
0: nine years ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm having a moment, you know.
0: <laughs>
1: so uh, why don't you tell why don't you tell me?
0: Newspaper article.
1: Ah, the newspaper article. Oh ah,
0: okay. Do you remember it? So I, I believe I sent you the article um, that I found in the archives of the Vancouver Sun newspaper. We were both living in Vancouver at the time, and there was a bit of hubbub. In, is that a word anymore? There was a bit of a hubbub in the Jewish community, apparently, about uh, bringing the gospel of Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus, to uh, our own people. And uh, they began to reach out to some of us for interviews, and I actually was the the lead person uh on a front page article under the fold uh in the vancouver sun and my understanding is that's what drew you out back to uh this monthly meeting we used to have that i that um predated my arrival in vancouver used to go and you hadn't been there in a while you saw the the article something prompted you to to show up and we i think we became quick friends
1: yeah we did actually at the time um and I do remember that we had been going to Ellie's fellowship since probably late 77, early 88, uh, rather 78. And um, we attended for a number of years and met some of the Jewish believers uh, in the Vancouver area. But then as I later, I became more engaged with the church in the Vancouver area on the east side. And I Slacked off, you might say, in my attendance. But when I saw the article um, again, I became quite interested because we were in the news. We existed. We were, you know, people of note. And it's interesting that about 10 years later, I went through the same thing in Montreal uh, with CBC and CTV and so on and so forth, as well as newspaper articles. So from time to time, we make the news. But to backtrack a bit to my faith story, uh, like you, Alan, I was born and raised in Montreal. Um, in terms of my Jewish education, I grew up in the synagogue, basically, and was there until probably 14 years old, maybe 15. I managed to hang in another year after my bar mitzvah, but we were very steady in our attendance. My parents would take us, you know, uh, every week. And so we were very much part of the culture and the culture in Montreal. Very much a part. The Jewish community in those days was a very tight community. I'm a little older than you, so it's a different era. Very, very tight community. And everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew what everybody was doing. And so um, growing up in that community and growing up in Montreal at large as a Jewish person, Uh, was an interesting experience. We found ourselves kind of sandwiched between faith groups, in a sense, never having the impression that anyone liked us too much. (laughs) But nevertheless, there we were. And so um, I grew up in a very conventional Jewish way, let's put it that way. And I had an older brother. He was two years older than myself. And in the mid 60s, in 1966, excuse me, my brother passed away under very tragic circumstances. And it was extremely difficult for me. And I had no positive faith in God, even though I'd grown up in the synagogue. I had no, I understood Jewish history. I understood what it meant culturally to be a Jew, even religiously to be a Jew. But in terms of knowing who God was, Or the fact that I could even communicate with God was something that was not known to me. And so my brother's death sent me into a a time of deep distress in which uh, for a while I tried to soothe my pain with substances like alcohol and drugs and the like because it
0: was the 60s. And, And how old were you at the time?
1: At the time, I would have been in my maybe, well, when my brother passed, maybe 19, maybe 20. I'm not 100% sure. And um, I went through a very difficult period because my brother and I were extremely close. And I began to ask questions that I really never had to ask myself before. Like, why did this happen? Uh, Where did he go? You know, where is he now? And, you know, is there an afterlife and the kind of questions that, you know, teenagers don't usually ask themselves if they come from the background that I came from. And so that began a search uh, for me, a very intensive search for truth. It was destructive at first. But I remember in 1969, I was uh, having um, supper with a friend of my late brother. And he had a very interesting fellow over there whom he was interviewing uh, to um, manage uh, a branch of his father's company of all places up in the Arctic. And it, what makes it really humorous is that in those days, what they would do would they would if you would order so much meat every month, they would supply the freezer, you see. And here was this guy going up to what was called Baffin Island then. What do they need? Freezers up there? Just stuck stuff in the snow, you know, that's all you have to do. And he started witnessing to me. Now, at the time, I was in my last year of university and I was a philosophy major. Oh, boy. I was a philosophy major. So I thought I was quite a clever individual. But it was interesting because this guy was telling me things I never heard of. He was talking in this language about doors opening and doors closing and how he went up to this uh, some church up there and in the Arctic and he prayed some prayer in a language he never prayed before. And then they told him that he prayed in the perfect They He prayed in Inuktitut. And there was all this strange stuff that he was telling me. I mean, I'm a Jewish kid. I've never heard anything like this before. And I'm shaking my head and think, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. You know, And I, I walked away thinking he was quite naive. But he was like a train on a track, Alan. He would not stop witnessing to me. It didn't matter what I said to him. So long story short, that was the first time that I ever heard the gospel. And in the years that followed, I finished university, and I had a very, uh, I, I had a very deep interest, you might say, just because of the time, the era in which I lived, and my involvement, especially with hallucinogenic drugs in i call it the the other side i'd come to understand that there was more at least through those experiences to my existence than what i was living so to speak in the you know the natural realm and uh as a result of that i you know first of all in my last year of university i more or less overdid it with the drugs and um you know, determined I was never going to do that again. And so I began to look into Eastern mysticism. I began to look into Buddhism in particular, which I had a longstanding interest in actually. And then Hinduism, and I began to practice yoga and meditation and things of this nature. And at the time we went off to France and I was studying medicine there for a while. That's another story, but I won't go into it, <laughs> okay? But um, at the time, one of the things that really um, really bothered me was this whole question about my brother, and I wasn't getting answers. You know, I knew there was another dimension to existence. Uh, I had seen it. I had touched it. But there were questions that were unanswered. And so I began to experiment with the occult. I began to try to contact my late brother. You know, for and this, of course, was not a kosher thing to do, and not a healthy
0: thing. So, were do. you in France at this time when this is happening, or are you? Yes. Okay. Yes,
1: and I had some very strange experiences there.
0: So we this was not up... a con- this is not a comment on France in particular, though. This this is where it happened. Okay, just. <laughs>
1: no it's not a comment on france it wasn't the influence of the french you know it was just simply what happened and i remained involved in that grid for a number of years and by about 1974 it began to get very scary you know i had learned how to do something called astral projection where i could leave my body and travel places and um what began to happen would be that all of a sudden i'd be sleeping at night and it was as though that quotes astral body was being ripped out of my being and i was flying around the room like you would blow up a balloon and let the air out and it began to get very scary and i began to see that there was a very dark side to these things plus i was still doing drugs and i had a few bad trips on lsd that scared the heck out of me and all of a sudden, into the mix, I get knock on my door. Knock, 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 knock. Who is it? It's the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses. And so they come to me and they, you know, they want to tell me, you know, about what's happening in the world from their perspective. And so we invited them in. And again, being the great philosophy major that I was, we got into a lively debate. But long story short, uh, they they asked if they could return and so okay fine return you want to talk we'll talk but in the course of the time we spent with them i made two major discoveries because you see they have their own doctrines but essentially at the beginning what they you know what they uh, teach you is quite biblical and there were two amazing things that i learned from them the first thing i learned was that God was a personal God. In other words, he interacted with people. Um, Having been involved in Eastern mysticism, I, you know, God was the great ground of being. He was in the chairs, he was in the tables, he was in the trees, he was in the sky. You know what I mean? He's in you, God's everywhere. But when I learned that God was a personal God, and he spoke to people and interacted with our ancestors, I became really excited and I thought well if he spoke to Abraham maybe just maybe he speaks to me
0: so, so that oh, was you Now Michael how how come that wasn't something that occurred to you in your growing up
1: I guess basically because I considered the bible to be ancient history written by people who had no adequate explanation for many phenomena that took place in the history of our people. And so they posited a god, you know, as some, you know, what they call in what's called in Latin, Deus Ex Machina, you know, this this thing in the sky that operates and orchestrates events. That's how I viewed it. You know, you can you can sit in the synagogue and be a total unbeliever. It's not a it's not a problem at all. The thing of it is that you do this because if there's a God, well, I'm doing the right thing. You know, I'm praying the prayers, I'm doing the liturgy. And if there's a God, I'm okay. If there's not, well, it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, there's just this, so there's this, as you know, there's a very interesting thing that we, on one hand, our people treasure our stories. That's our book. And we want people to remember that. But the idea that we, our lives can reflect people like David and others who had this personal relationship with god is just it's it's ignored it's it's it was i it's just i well, guess it's mainly ignored more than anything else right
1: well it's ignored because god is you know i mean the rabbinical concept of god is such that he's afar off essentially that he's untouchable you might say that the rabbis have separated him so far from us that uh, it's not possible for us to interact with him except through the mitzvot and, you know, other ways that, you know, that have been mandated by them. So even in the Jewish concept of things, uh, reaching God is a difficult thing, okay? Because holiness separates him from you.
0: And and yet, so then the the Jehovah Witnesses helped be a bridge with connecting with the reality of those stories. And just like them, we can have a personal relationship with him.
1: Absolutely. And the second thing I learned from them, because they studied, you know, they engaged us in a study of biblical prophecy, was that Jesus, this Jesus, who for me was a swear word Mm -hmm. until then, this Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. That one totally blew me away. How could this be? Jesus, the, the, the ones that the, the the Catholics, the Protestants believed it. I look. We grew up in a time when the priests used to walk around in those long robes, you know, and the and the nuns and everything were totally covered up, and you know, you had these bloody crucifixes, and I was like, whoa, this is really really strange stuff. And so consequently, for me, Jesus was a Catholic. I, I, and in fact, everybody who was not Jewish was Christian from my point of view. And so here I am learning about Jesus, finding out that Jesus was Jewish. And not only was Jesus Jewish, but he's actually the Messiah. The Bible said he's the Messiah. I, I was like, whoa, what is this? So the Jehovah's Witnesses take us up to what they called the Divine Sovereignty Assembly. And they warned us, this was 1974, they said, look, Armageddon is coming next year. You have to get baptized and become a Jehovah's Witness. Now they'd invested a year and a half in us, right? So so this was it, you know? Okay, we've invested a year and a half in in you now, you make your decision. So we made our decision. And our decision was, mm, no, <laughs> I don't think we're going to do this. <laughs> so we decided not to do that. But long story short, um, if I tell you how I came to faith, you're not going to believe this. But this is my story.
0: Anyway, okay, folks, that's the disclaimer. I, I, that's everybody. No one's going to believe this.
1: Okay, (laughs) don't listen to it. I won't tell it. (laughs) Okay, so here we go, folks. Here we go. We leave the Jehovah's Witnesses. And we decide to take our daughter, Lisa, who is in her 40s now, uh, was a baby in diapers. And we decided we wanted to go away for a holiday. And where were we going to go? We were going to go to um, an ashram, you know, uh, where uh, we would do yoga. And um, you know, do meditations and whatnot. This was going to be our vacation. So we go up to this place uh, north of Montreal, probably about—I think it was in Valmoren, about 40 miles north of Montreal—and we do this whole thing. And we're getting up in the morning at 4:30, 5 o'clock to do the meditations and the exercises, and then have a nutritious meal of alfalfa sprouts or some other horrible thing. And uh, nevertheless. What happens is one day, there was this big exercise hall where we would all be first thing in the morning. And one day, uh, everyone was gone from the exercise hall. And at the far end of the hall, because it was a big one, there was this big guy, you know, African-American guy. And he was sweeping up at the far end of the room. And so, um, you know, I went over to him and I said, you know, what are you doing? Oh, he says I'm doing karma yoga. Oh, okay, that's why you're sweeping up, you know, good karma. Sweeping up at the yoga ashram, you know, you're gonna gain points with the deities. But he says to me, he says I want to show you something. So he 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 takes me into his room. But he has this little cubicle off the exercise hall, and I mean little, like it was about the size of a twin bed, not much bigger than that. He takes me into the into his room. And he shows me this poster on the wall. I'm looking at this poster on the wall. And I guess because I've studied with the JWs, I see that it's Jesus coming through the clouds of heaven with all the saints. Right. And it's from the viewpoint of somebody standing on the earth and looking up. I look at that painting or that poster. I look at that poster and it's like a bomb went off inside me. I said, he's the one. He's the one. He's the one I've been looking for. I was like blown away. I go out into the exercise hall. And this guy, David, his name was, is down at the other end of the exercise hall, and he's about six foot seven. He's a big guy. He's about six foot seven. I go running toward him at top speed. I jump and I grab him by the neck, and we start dancing around this hall, saying, "He's the one." He's the one. He's the one. We're dancing around this exercise hall. And, and then all of a sudden, I just let go of his neck. And he tells me that he's going to Britain after this to find John the Baptist or something like this. Some strange story. Anyway, my head is spinning. My head is spinning. So I leave the exercise hall, and I'm just wandering around on the property. And I find myself by this little pond, little pond. And I'm sitting by this little pond. I think, what am I going to do now? And a voice speaks to me and says, get out of here right now. Get out of here right now. So anyway, I went and got Lauren. She was she didn't want to be there. (laughs) And we, we just jumped in the car. We packed up and we went back to Montreal. So. At the time, we were living in NDG, and um, one night, I'm in the bathtub. A lot of things happened to me in the bathtub. I'm not a shower person. I'm a bath person. <laughs> okay. I'm, so I'm in the bathtub. And all of a sudden, I remember what this guy told me five years before about Jesus. It just comes to my mind. He said, you have to receive him personally. You have to receive him personally. Now, don't forget, I had the revelation of his messiahship. I actually had what I will call a, an experiential revelation of him. But what I hadn't done was this. And so, of course, the Holy Spirit is orchestrating all this stuff for this ignorant Jewish kid. And I'm in the bathtub, and I said to Jesus, I said, I understand I have to receive you. (laughs) So I'm going to receive you. (laughs) So come, do whatever it is you do, come in, right? Come in. And I had an experience in the bathtub. So you might say my conversion experience unfolded in a, you know, in, in a few ways. You couldn't get me to go anywhere near a church. So here on with the drama. What happens is one day I get another knock at the door. It's the Mormons. I won't go into church. Remember, for me, the church, first of all, the Jehovah's Witnesses have taught me that the church is the great whore of Babylon. Secondly, growing up in the Jewish community, it's Catholic. It's like it's not for us, right? So these Mormons come knocking at the door, Mormon elders. I love them. They're like 20 years old, 19, they have a badge, elder so and so, you know, it's kind of strange but so they come to the door and at the time i felt i should get baptized so when they come to the door i say to them hey can you baptize me these guys it was like I struck cold, right here is this guy saying baptize me baptize me i want to get baptized well what happened was we planned our baptism at the Mormon Church, which uh, was somewhere in the West Island. And in the middle of the week, I get a call from a friend of mine uh, who was also another seeker, but he he decided to go in a little more conventional way. He went into the Presbyterian Seminary in McGill. And we were good friends and we shared our, quote, spiritual experiences. And he calls me up and he says to me, hey, Michael, how are you doing? I said, oh, I'm doing good. He, I said, Hey, his name was Harry. I said, hey, Harry, you know what? I'm getting baptized. Oh, he says, that's wonderful. He says, <laughs> <Is this> wonderful. <laughs> he said, who's doing this? I said, oh, the Mormons, you know, they came to my door and I asked them, you know, can, can you baptize me? And he said, don't do it, Michael. Don't do it. So God God raised up Harry to call me that day in the middle of the week. It was Wednesday saturday was the day for my baptism so long story short i didn't i didn't do it and then of course in 77 we left for vancouver and um we did connect again with uh ellie and uh uh, the the fellowship that he had and um at the same time we met a couple
0: yep just hold on michael sorry and i was muted for a second but um So after Harry, did anything happen to solidify anything in your mind and heart about your faith, or you were just still in this process?
1: After Harry called me, I realized that I had made a mistake. Okay. In other words, he was, you know, he explained to me about, you know, the difference between you know, what shall I call authentic Christians and pseudo-Christians, okay? And so he did give me that explanation. By then, he learned about it. As far as my faith went, I had a sincere faith, a real faith. I had a relationship with the Lord. But, you know, there's an old expression about catching fish and cleaning them. I had a lot of accretions. I had a lot of ideas. That I had come out of, you know, all my years of experimentation with uh, Eastern mysticism. I was still trying to uh, reconcile the idea of reincarnation with what it says in Hebrews about how disappointed unto man wants to die and then the judgment. And so, and, and still I hadn't given up smoking marijuana. I had no discipleship whatsoever. And it would have been at that point in time. That I would have profited greatly from discipleship. I know that now, but at that point in time, I wasn't ready to take a step and go. I had a positive faith, I had a relationship, but what I didn't have was I didn't have a faith community to become part of where I could receive, uh, you know, the the teaching that I needed to live my life as a believer, as a as a Jesus follower. In such a way that it would be in conformity with Scripture and according to the way Yeshua Himself lived. So that's. So what you're I you're wondered.
0: still on, you're still very much on your own. Yeah. And where was Florin at at this point?
1: Dear Florin, <laughs> Florin tracked with me. She tracked with me. You know, um, she herself came to faith about four years after I did i mean maybe when we exited the crazy stage and she saw her own need uh one particular one particular afternoon when we were living in north vancouver she gave her heart to the lord
0: okay so that's after, that's after 77 when you made the move did yeah. you want it it would it be helpful what prompted you to go to vancouver
1: Well, I think what prompted us to go to Vancouver had a lot to do with the uncertainties in Quebec at the time. Uh, They had passed the language legislation. And, you know, I I spoke French. It it wasn't the problem uh, to remain there and speak French. But there was such instability and uncertainty in the province. And at the time, there was a certain degree of prejudice against English speakers. And I had a friend in Vancouver who had been a, a longtime friend. And so we decided to, I went out there for a sort of, um, you know, just to go and see and look around and see if it would be a good place for us to be. And I stayed with him during that time. And then I came back to Montreal and we decided to move out to Vancouver. It seemed to be a good place to be.
0: Okay. So see, now you go to Vancouver and things, sounds like they begin to more solidify for you and, and for Florin.
1: Yeah. What happens is we go to Vancouver and at the time I'm working in the pharmaceutical industry as uh, what's called as a representative. I was visiting hospitals. I was visiting physicians and whatnot, working for a specific um, pharmaceutical company and uh, promoting their products. I wasn't selling them per se, but promoting them. And one day there was a medical building and it was on, um, I think it was off Granville Street. No, it was no, it wasn't on it was granville it was near the corner of Granville, and I go around the corner one day and there's this antique furniture place now I'd been in the furniture business in Montreal. I had a very good job there, and I go in I want to take a look at the antique product- uh, antique reproductions, and I run into a man by the name of Lionel Leslie. <laughs> Lionel
0: takes me. I've been to this. Place. I've been to his store, that's and it right. was it was on Granville. It was on. Yeah. That's right. It was on Granville.
1: Yeah. What was the What was the street that was? The,
0: oh, I don't remember.
1: Okay, the first street. Okay, so at any rate, I meet Lionel Leslie, and and we begin to talk, and um Lionel, you know, I think I'm the only Jewish believer in the world. You know how it goes, right? You're the only one. I've just met another one, <laughs> I'm totally blown Oh, There's two of us in the world, you know, amazing. And he takes me in the back and he shows me his Bible bookstore. And um, I got my first Bible from uh, Lionel. I still have it. It's in my bookshelf in Israel. And um, it's Lionel that invited me to the meetings on Osler Street, where Ellie was. And so that's how we connected with Ellie. So um we were attending the meetings there, and at those meetings we met a couple by the name of John and Minnie Heslinga. You asked me that question the other day. And they took us to um an assembly over on the south side of Vancouver on Victoria Drive. And so we began to attend church there. And I can tell you that the first time I walked in there, I I stood really close to the. I had no idea what to expect when I walked into this church, right? And so uh, we went in there. uh, It was different, to say the least. Again, understand, I'm a Jewish kid. I mean, (laughs) I haven't seen this. And the strangest thing was some of the meetings that I went to because I play the guitar like you do. And uh, John and Minnie had this meeting on Saturday nights down in Surrey. And they conscripted me to play the guitar because... You know, this woman and these two women that I was playing with, they weren't very good musicians. So I could play the guitar and I was standing up there as they would do their worship service and whatnot. And I was watching all these people and I was seeing stuff, you know, who says praise the Lord? Hallelujah. You know, all that stuff. I was like, what is this, right? And I'm really happy that I'm standing up there on that platform, separated from all the stuff that's going on down there in what looks like an audience. But there's great participation, right? All kinds of things. People are getting up and saying, thus says the Lord. What, what's this? What's this? And so I'm being sort of baptized into something I've never seen. I'm just totally blown away by it. But after a while, I got used to it, I guess. And and I was very, you know, I was obedient to do my part <laughs> as a guitarist. Well, and I learned a lot of music and whatnot. So we continued to go to, we split our time between um, this Fraser View Assembly on the south side of Vancouver. And we would attend Ellie's, you know, uh, from time to time as we would continue with our you know our fellowship yeah, and, to, and to
0: clarify that would be a group that we would be part of when Robin and I would move to Vancouver in uh, the early 80s and it was a, a a gathering of Jewish believers
1: yeah
0: is what it was it was and, and uh, you know there are a lot of Jewish style gatherings that don't have a lot of Jewish people but but these there were a lot of us Jewish believers attending these meetings And we're, Maybe we're jumping ahead a little bit. I just want to clarify what going to Ellie's meant. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. Ellie's wasn't a bar or something like that.
0: <laughs> <It was. laughs> you know, one thing, though, it might be a good time to ask you. Like, uh, So a lot of your story, this is the first time I've heard it, but it kind of fits with, with knowing you as I do. You're somebody that things have happened to. You know, and your time—the yes. the knocks on the door. I know other stories about being in the bathtub and God uh, speaking to you, and and this sort of thing, and other very unusual, uh, sometimes very delightful things have happened to you. But could you speak into for a moment what this has all meant to you personally? At some point, something happens in your heart, and not just in your in your head about figuring things out. What has Was there, first of all, was there a moment where it was was more than just a decision? It was something that was truly real to you and made a difference to you as a human being.
1: You know what? There's a line. I think as we get to know the Lord, both through scripture and through our personal experience and prayer and our fellowship with other people. It reinforces a number of things, which is the sense of the reality of God. And the sense of. He's not just God out there. But he knows me, he knows my name, he knows everything about me. Uh, He has an interest in me, he cares for me. He wants to help me. And so. I become challenged increasingly to trust him, to believe him for things that I never had to believe for before, because all of a sudden in the process, especially when I was living in Vancouver, I find myself, Florin and I find ourselves going through some very difficult times financially, which is something we never experienced in our lifetimes. And as we do, we're forced to throw ourselves on the Lord to sustain us. And he begins to do some extraordinary miracles for us. Um, miracles of provision. I, I'm going to tell you one story, which I love.
0: Because <laughs> I, I, I have a favorite Michael Gertzman provision story. I wonder if it's the same one. Well, you tell me. Give me an, an indication. Is uh, it the, but, the loan. About what? The loan.
1: Oh, the loan. Oh, that's, that's another one. This one I love because it involves my son. We were going through a very, very difficult time financially to the point where Alan, we didn't have, we couldn't afford to buy food for the children. And so Florin bought these soya beans and she mashed them up and every night and she put water in it because we didn't even have milk. And every night, she'd make these soya burgers. But one night, my son, David, who was three years old at the time, looks at the soya burgers, and he says this. He says, David, he says, I'm not eating this. We said, David, why aren't you eating this? And he says, because, he says, tomorrow, I'm having hamburgers. (laughs) Tomorrow, you're having hamburgers? How are you going to have hamburgers? Anyway okay, David, don't eat it. I don't blame you. This doesn't taste very good. We've done the best we can to prepare it, right? And so that night, of course, after the kids go to bed, I'm in the kitchen. I'm in the kitchen, and I'm opening the cupboards, the kitchen cupboards. And, Alan, there's nothing in them. It's like as bare as Mother Hubbard's cupboard, right? And then all of a sudden, in my mind's eye, I see the shelves Packed with food and so much food, I have to put it on the counter. I just laughed to myself, kind of like I suppose Sarah laughed when she told she would, when she was told she'd have a son, right? I just laughed, right? And the next day, sure enough, it happened. A woman shows up at the door who we knew from North Vancouver because we were living down in Delta at the time and she starts unpacking her car. And she brings in carton after carton of food. And we fill the cupboards and it's on the counter. And it was exactly what David had prophesied at three years old. And what I had seen laughingly in my spirit. So we had incredible miracles of provision. And at the time, another thing that happened was we'd owned this store in uh, Tuasen. And it didn't work out very well. And that's when we went into that bad period financially. And we were living in a certain house up in Ladner. And um finally, the last month, I could actually pay the landlord on time. I went to the landlord and I said to him, Here's your rent check. And he said to me, Oh, I'm sorry, uh, don't give it to me. I've sold the property. So I said, Well, who did you sell it to? I'll 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 get the money to him. So he told me about um, some lawyer, Ladner there, I guess, who had done the transaction. I go in there with this check, you know, and ask for a damage deposit, on a transfer of a damage deposit. And nothing happens. Three or four months later, nothing has happened. And then one day they cash the check, try to, and the check bounces. But I never hear from them. One year goes by. Two years go by. Three years, four years go by. Nothing. And every day we say we're living here for free. We're paying, of course, we're paying, of course, the electricity and everything else that you pay. But in terms of rental, there's no rental being paid. Finally, one day after four years of this, knock, knock, knock on the door. This guy shows up, you know, sort of like the big black car outside the door sort of thing. And I wasn't there at the time. And Florin says, hello, how are you? And he introduces himself as a property manager. And it turned out that they didn't even know. They lived on the other side of town, believe it or not. And they did not know that there was a house there. Four years, they didn't know there was a house there. So anyway, he was absolutely shocked. And uh, he said, well, I guess you're going to have to pay rent. Now, the year before, in the third year, I did something. I was a little nervous that one day if they ever caught up with me, I would have to pay all the rent. You know, like imagine at that time, three years worth of rent. I didn't have any money. I was going to have to pay. So I um, at the time, there was a fellow by the name of Alan Lazard. Alan uh, started going to the church that I was attending, but he'd been a lawyer up in Campbell River and he knew his stuff. And I went to Alan one day and I said, Alan, listen, here's my situation. If uh, they ever come to me, will I be liable for all the rent? And Alan said, well, did you ever pay them? I said, yes, I gave them a check, but it bounced. Ah, he said, no. He said, what happened would be that if the check had gone through, it would have established what's called a contract by performance. But because the check bounced, <laughs> 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 you don't know of anything. <laughs> so my God, we, got, we basically lived there rent-free for four years. And then when he came in, he he says to Florin, can I look around? Can I look around? And, um, you know, can I, uh, I'll give you a figure for rent. And so he gives her a figure for rent. And, um, you know, she, he says, talk to your husband and have him get back to me. So he gives a figure for rent. And I said to Florin, we can't afford this. This is what we can't afford. And that was the rent that we were paying like six years before. I said, this is what we can afford. So I contacted the guy and I said, look, this is what I can afford," he said. "Fine, <laughs> no problem." <laughs> so we had four years of free living, along with many other miracles. But the, those are two that I. Uh, yes, a lot of stuff has happened. Wow. So hey, but folks, don't take course. don't
0: take this as legal advice, right? Uh, <laughs> so my yeah, favorite the story that I remember that I've often retold is, yeah. and I hope I've told it properly so you can correct me, is you had some sort of loan that, um, you hadn't been paying back for some time and out of the goodness of your heart, you decide to call the bank and say, you want to start to repay the loan and they got back to you and forgave you the loan.
1: Yeah. Well, now I'll tell you the story. The story goes like this. I was paying the loan but I was paying back a paltry amount. I was paying what I could pay. I would give them a series of post checks. So this was about 1985, I guess, somewhere around there, uh, 84, 85. I called the bank and I said, do you need any checks from me? Well, the person who was dealing with my file was blown away. They said, people don't call us and, and ask us. <laughs> and ask us to give them, you know, uh, do, do you need any checks? <laughs> so this woman said, she said, look, I'll get back to you. And so what she did was she, you know, took a look at the file and she saw that I actually had paid. I've been paying a little, a little, a little, because the, the proverb says, you know, that the the uh, the borrower is the servant of the lender. And, you know, I didn't want to be, you know, entrapped that way. I did the best I could to pay it back. She calls me back and it's December and she says to me, Mr. Gertzman, I want to give you a Christmas gift. Oh, I said, okay. I thought maybe she, maybe, maybe. They're going to let me off on a few payments. You know, I won't have to pay, but instead she said, no, we're going to forgive you the loan and, We are going to send you, you know, a document from the lawyer discharging you from all responsibility. So that's what happens. But a few years later, listen to this, Alan. A few years later, when I returned to Montreal, I'm going to a church in the West Island. And in that church in the West Island, there is a Jewish believer. And he was working. He was an executive at this federal business bank that I had borrowed the money from. And I told him my story. And he got really, really angry. He got angry, actually got angry at me. And he said, we never do that. We never do that. And I said, Sandy, I said, I can prove it to you. I have the paper of discharge. (laughs) But he was livid, Alan. he was, I couldn't believe it, that I got away with not paying and they forgave me the loan. So that's the story.
0: You know, both of us have experienced... You know having become believers yeah. we really been drawn into it's actually the world the way it really is but it's another world where we were brought up to believe certain things don't happen but That's when right. you know the God of creation uh, who mm-hmm. is our Heavenly Father it's just there's no telling what he might do and anything absolutely. becomes possible it's absolutely so, so you um so you You like i did we grew up in 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 the jewish community both in montreal different different circumstances different neighborhoods your upbringing was more religious than mine though i had some religious influence in my life um and then you go on a spiritual trek that is not very jewish by any stretch of the imagination and you end up uh finally coming to believe in jesus as the jewish messiah but for the most part you don't really have much of a jewish context for this Jesus, until you go to not the bar, but the <laughs> <laughs> gathering at Ellie's, um, and meet up and get to know other Jewish believers and so on. How did you put, I want to say, our Jewishness, so your Jewishness, and Jesus together? Like how did how did that happen for you? And 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 I know that's a process over a period of time, but and we don't have a lot of time left. But can you try to encapsulate that for us?
1: Yeah, actually, it wasn't difficult for me because, as I said, you know, even though I did not learn a lot of truth from the Jehovah's Witnesses, I did understand from the outset that Jesus was Jewish, his disciples were Jewish, that basically the people that they called the early kehillah, the early church, were all Jews. So essentially, I was returning I always had that sense that I was returning to the roots of this faith that was really quite Jewish to begin with, that Jesus was not a Catholic, that the disciples were not Catholics, that Jesus was a Jew. And uh, that was something I carried with me. And I think in my own heart, what drew me to uh, the Messianic work was I, I felt there was a hole inside me. You understand what I mean? I was brought up in a certain way. Um, I identified as a Jew, even if I went to the church, I identified as a Jew. That's I was born and raised and bred that. I mean, that's who I was.
0: Didn't you and have a so, time where you decided you were going to wear your kippa to church? Am I making no, that I'm, up? No, no. No? Maybe it's somebody else.
1: I, I might have. I might have at some point in time, but it was a fruitless endeavor. <laughs> They probably, if I wore a red one, they would have thought I was a bishop or something.
0: <laughs> do you re, do you remember what spur, the, what happened to spur us on to investigate?
1: Oh, <laughs> yes, I do. I told someone the story recently. Oh, that is, we, it,
0: it plays like a movie talking, in my mind.
1: We were talking about you know planting congregations, which is something I've done.
0: Well, first of all, let's, and, so the, oh, many of the Jewish believers in Vancouver at the time were very antsy about the idea of a, a messianic congregation so that a jewish oriented fellowship that of uh, believers in in yeshua jesus but there was like this feeling of hesitate great hesitation of doing such a thing we were meeting kind of on the side like uh every um once a month on saturdays right but the thought of actually having our own fellowship uh, and that would be our faith community there were these feelings and so we began talking about it and then somebody came to town
1: <laughs> yes somebody came to town who shall remain nameless
0: yeah it's not that important <laughs>
1: you know and we had been we had been discussing all of us had been the, the, the,
0: yeah and the out-of-towner came to we were doing a Bible study um, on uh, maybe it was Friday nights or something um, I'm pretty sure because I, my, I remember Robin gave him chicken soup and matzo balls and he he, sh- he shouted to, to the kitchen. He said, is my grandmother in the kitchen? So it, it must have been a Friday evening.
1: Yes, it was for
0: sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then, to at your place. yeah. and then you came over and I gave you a cup of tea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and after he left.
0: We well, okay like so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just finish it up then yeah, so ira because i knew why he was in town you yeah. didn't yet and so you're no sitting on the couch and he's there and you have your cup of tea and you turn to him very politely and say and said what brings you to vancouver and he said i'm here to explore the possibility of starting a messianic congregation and as you're beginning to sip your tea it got you kind of went <laughs> <laughs> and th- that's when you and i said to yeah. each other, we yeah. got to deal with this question because somebody, a stranger is going to come in from the outside. We know all these people who already. We already have these Jewish believers. We need to know what what we want. Yeah. And then you things know what, happen I from was there.
1: Using this. I was talking, it's interesting, I was talking about planting congregations and I use this particular story because I believe that you know, um, when you bring in someone who hasn't grown up in the house, so to speak, to begin a work, uh, it doesn't work. Because, you know, if when when you spend time with people and you absorb, you know, you dialogue and absorb one another's thoughts and ideas and come to some, uh, you know, consensus, as it were, about what it is you want to do. And you share similar ideas, and then somebody comes from outside who comes from a totally different grid, but they're gonna they're gonna do this. This is why, for example, a lot of times, like I work with transitions in churches a lot of times, and what happens is, uh, you know, in certain denominations, uh, when the pastor leaves, along goes everyone who assisted him. They all disappear, and then they bring in a new cast of characters, and a lot of times, it never works out. Because when somebody's mentored in the house, when we share similar ideas, I mean, we were, you know, we were young and we were, you know, sort of uh, banging off each other in a way, our ideas. But we had come to consensus, and we would, we were able to work together because we were able to work together because we built a relationship of trust. We understood each other's thinking. Okay, we weren't 100% uh, in complete agreement. I remember certain people who were <laughs> a, a I was getting a little memory. worried that you were going memory, to... <laughs> Alan, a, a blessed memory.
0: I was I was I was I was worried that you're going to make it sound like it was and from there on it was just smooth sailing.
1: No, 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 <laughs> no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs>
0: we're we're laughing now, folks.
1: Oh my goodness. That was an incredible startup, Alan. I tell you it was the hardest I've ever done in my life. You know. Uh, so.
0: But you per, you persevered. You actually you disappeared. Makes the story short. You disappeared for about a year after the early stage. Then we left town. Then you came back. And then yeah. things in your own ministry and and Messianic ministry really began to uh, solidify.
1: Yeah, that's right. Very much so. And then we followed you to Montreal. And that's a whole other
0: story. That's a whole other. <laughs> interesting a story other,
1: a whole other story and we haven't got time to tell it today
0: yeah anyway you and i have had some really precious times together but uh, and some of it very very close most of it not close but then again it talking about solidifying what you had your period uh with the fellowship in um the congregation in vancouver then what eventually A few years into your time back in Montreal, again, things solidified for it. And would would you say that became the foundation of everything you would end up doing later on, even up till today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In other words, uh, the first one was the proving ground for it. And even though it wasn't, let's just say, perfect in every way, it certainly was solid enough by the time you and I both left for the work to carry on. I was just in touch with Daniel. Nessum, just not too long ago. And, you know, you're looking at something that's running 35 years, you know, and uh, Ellie, who was a bit of a skeptic, I remember, or maybe because of the relationship with the ministry that he was serving, uh, he came in and, you know, faithfully took the work on. So, whatever foundation we built, we were, you know, we were those who built the foundation. And whatever foundation we built was solid enough. For them to build on so that to this day, the work continues. And that's the issue. That's the big issue there. So later on, when I came to Montreal again, I partnered with somebody and uh, we began a work there that lasted for a lot of years until, till, till we left it at a certain point in time. And eventually, unfortunately, the leader doctrinally took some very strange turns and passed away actually last year. He passed away last year. But my commitment to this is never, you know, it's never faded. This is who I am. In other words, we worked it out in that time that, you know, you were sharing when that fella came up from, you know, the Southern United States and with the intention of doing something. And we'd already dialogue. We already understood one another. We already trusted one another. We were already committed but not committed enough to jump off the diving board <clears throat> but once we did and we began it it worked hmm. it worked and it was solid enough to continue so the foundation you build as a planter is extremely extremely important so yes those were those were wonderful years they were wonderful years and so the next time i went through it uh, it was much easier right because i had learned to work. In cooperation and consensus with a group of people, it's very hard when you seem to be the only person who's tasked with, you know, birthing something. But the most important thing of all is to be able to learn to work with others and come to that place where you share a common heart and a common vision. And I think we came to that place. And so when we were challenged and we needed to be kicked off, you know, the edge of the pool and into the pool, we did it. But by that time, the level of trust and understanding was high enough for the work to go forward.
0: Yeah, that that's wonderful. Now we really should uh, be wrapping up. Um, I did wanted to get into what I call the Israel piece of of your life and ministry. I was wondering maybe maybe we could do that another time, and then we could okay. focus just on that because uh, yeah. that too is there's a there's transition there, and it became such a important part of of, of who you are. And what you're doing. But before we go, can you briefly explain what you are doing and let people know how they can contact you if they like?
1: What we do currently, um, when we left Montreal in 2007 um, and finally turned over the congregation, uh, we would go. We began to live in Israel half the year approximately, half the year here. So when I was here, I became itinerant. Through the years, when I ministered here in Montreal, like yourself, we met a lot of people and we developed a network. So I became itinerant and I began to share on, you know, things to do with Israel in certain cases and other things, just simply because I'm a believer and my knowledge extends far beyond that. And, you know, basically was being used in the role of edifying the body. That's what the Lord was doing. So I became, I became very occupied in an itinerant ministry in Canada. But when I was in Israel, I was a pastoral elder in a congregation in the community in which I lived. And I was part of the foundation of that community when uh, the people who were there again were contemplating doing it and didn't know where to to go and what, you know, and so on. So I became very much a part of the foundation of that place by inputting the experience that I had. And so I became a vital part uh, of that congregation. And then in time, I, as you said in the intro, I became involved in, you know, funding. um, I had some interesting projects I funded beside the, uh, you know, I had this computer uh, literacy program for Ethiopian immigrants who were disadvantaged. But one of the best programs we had was a tennis program. I, I was funding a tennis tennis program, again, for disadvantaged kids. And the reason why is we had, a, there was a fellow that I knew very well lived in my village who was tennis. He was a tennis instructor. And we came up with this idea of putting it at a community center in Haifa, where there were a lot of disadvantaged kids, and teaching them how to play tennis, you know, so that, you know, they would learn sportsmanship. and. You know, just learn some confidence and competence in a particular skill. And it it became a very interesting, interesting project. In fact, uh, when it was challenged one time, there was one time when um, this was down in Jerusalem. There were two of them. One was in Haifa. One was in Jerusalem. And what was happening in Jerusalem is that they had uh, the director of the uh, community center was so amazed by what had happened and the popularity of this thing that they totally rebuilt the tennis court. But what happened was there were other kids in the neighborhood who were very jealous and they used to boo and jeer at the fence when the kids were playing. And so the kids were scared to come. And then what happened was the following week, all the mothers came out and they said, you will not touch our kids. We want our kids in this project. And so the project became a municipal project, like the computer program became a municipal project. They took it over. So we initiated and it got taken over. And there's another number of other things that I fund as well in the land. I don't have time to discuss them now. But one of them is really interesting. It's called the Beautiful Land Initiative. And essentially, it's picking up garbage. Oh, Israelis, you wouldn't believe what they do with garbage. It goes everywhere. The beaches on the Kinnaret, on the Sea of Galilee, you call it, are a mess. And so a friend of ours came up with this idea to beautify the land, brings in groups. He hasn't been able to do it recently, brings in groups from all over the world. They pick up garbage. The municipality of Tiberias was overwhelmed. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. Their own workers weren't doing it. And all of a sudden, these foreigners are coming in from all over the Christians, from all over the world, to pick up garbage and clean up the land. So it's begun. Uh, the idea was to change the culture in the land, and so pretty soon, Orthodox Orthodox Jewish kids were coming from Yeshivat. They were coming to pick up garbage. But this thing has spread like it spread like wildfire. So it's you know, those are some of the things. Now, recently, I've become connected in the past year with a congregation in Nahariya, where I now live. Where again I'm helping out with a fellow from Chosen People Ministries, and it's the congregation that Ellie's brother founded, you know, Or little.
0: What goes around comes around. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
1: so we're very much engaged there.
0: Yeah, I'm well, looking- it's, it does sound like. You know, you've been involved in so many things and you have so many more stories to tell. So it would be wonderful Great. to have you back. Why don't you uh, share your email address if people want to contact you?
1: I will do that. Uh, if you want to contact me, uh, my email address is L, J as in John, U as in under, D as in Daniel, <laughs> H as in Harry, at hotmail.ca, not .com, .ca, hotmail.ca ljudh at hotmail.ca
0: yeah and I'll, I'll put that in the description as well um, as well as information how you could contact me if you have any questions you can send them to comments at thinkingbiblically.org you could leave comments in uh, the comment section as well well michael it has been a pleasure as i said i'd never heard most of your story before so this has been a delight it's just been a delight uh, to, to be with you and to hear your adventures and looking forward to sharing much more with our people if you'd be willing to do it.
1: Well, it's my pleasure and it's a pleasure to it's a pleasure to see you again Alan, and to remember that we have a history and it's been a very interesting history at that. And yet we're we both survived our histories and have landed successfully on the other side.
0: I don't think. Do you think we're done? I don't think we're done. I say there's more adventures to to happen. I agree. There's more adventures. Yeah, and we had an interesting WhatsApp interchange (laughs) yesterday. So we're uh, even between the two of us.
1: Alan, the point is, we're (laughs) still standing. We're still standing.
0: God has been so good to us and to our families, and we've both been through so many uh, various kinds of challenges and you were sharing some of them and, you know, and I know some of, you know, you know, some of the other stories and God has been so good to, to us. He's been so good to you guys and, and, um, so thankful. Yeah. And so again, thanks for doing this with me and looking forward to the next time.
1: Okay. You'll let me know when you want it done. Great. Well,
0: again, please, if you have any questions for Michael, you could email him at his email address that he gave you, and I will have in the description. Again, please don't forget to subscribe, and you can email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically.